welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Season two of Right Medicine is brought to you by CME Palooza, the bestest and freest online event for the CME community. Plus, you get two incredibly suave gentlemen. Okay, one incredibly suave gentleman. I'll leave it to you to figure out who that is. The fall agenda for CME Palooza is out now. CME Palooza, where the CME community hangs out. Hello and welcome to Write Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and today my guest is Griselda Butler, a health education professional at Otsuka. I first met Griselda when I volunteered to serve on the research committee for the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professionals, maybe 2017, beginning of 2018. She was transitioning off the committee, but as soon as she spoke, I knew she was someone I wanted to connect with. Our paths have crossed all too seldom in the last few years, and so I was thrilled when she said yes to my invitation to guest on Right Medicine. You're going to love listening to her voice and absorbing her wisdom. And Griselda is wise, as I think you'll agree when you listen to this episode as she talks about her experience of being mentored and of mentoring others. Hello and welcome to Write Medicine. I'm Alex Housen, your host, and I'm here today with Griselda Butler, health education professional. We're here today to talk about mentoring. Welcome, Griselda. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to see you. It really is great to see you. You too. We're going to talk about mentoring today. Let me ask, first of all, if you could introduce yourself to listeners, who you are and what you do. Sure. So I am Griselda Butler. I am a health education professional. And I like to start off with that because there's a tendency for folks to say, you know, their title. (laughs) And my title is just that. It's a title. It could change tomorrow, but I still view myself as a health education professional. I've been working in the field since 1997, and I have held various positions, but I've always seen myself first and foremost as an educator. I work for Otsuka Pharmaceutical at this time, but prior to joining Otsuka about nine years ago, I was an education provider for 15 and a half years. Beautiful. And can we talk a little bit about mentoring then? Why is mentoring important to you? Mentoring is so critical. I think we're seeing it more and more even right now. Uh, when it comes to young people, but mentoring became important to me because I wasn't seeing people who looked like me in this field. I was not connected in a way that some others may have been connected. I didn't come through the pharma 
sort of pathway to education and I didn't have traditional academic background and mentoring was what really helped me to determine that this was my career path. I value mentorship when I'm being mentored and when I'm mentoring others. I think the more I'm mentored officially and unofficially, and we can talk about what difference there is between those two things, the more I have to give to the folks who I'm mentoring. And I do the same for them. It may be official or unofficial. So there's a lot in there that I I want to unpack. First of all, you talked about connection and network and not having or feeling that you didn't have the kind of connections to support your work in this field. So how did you get into this field? Sure. So I studied biology in undergrad and didn't really have any intention of becoming a teacher. Uh, I wasn't on a path to become a bench scientist, but I loved science. Um, I've always loved the field of medicine, and I actually had a passion to teach and to educate, but not in a formal, traditional setting. And like a lot of young people, 22, 23, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with my life which was very unlike me up until that point. Uh, I grew up in a very structured way. And so you had goals, you set them, you achieved them, and you moved on to the next one. But I was at a different place in my life. So I had taken different jobs, doing different things, and wasn't satisfied with any of them, and applied for a position at a place called the Goldbarb Institute. I'd never heard of it, knew nothing about it, but it mentioned a variety of things that caught my attention. The first was that it was education work for adults in the healthcare profession, specifically those working in long-term care and post-acute care. And then the second was writing, someone who was interested in learning the development skills for writing grants and working for a nonprofit in a culturally competent setting. And I have to tell you, I'm not sure culturally competent setting was a phrase I'd heard prior to reading that job description. And it was definitely, I feel like, ahead of its time in many ways. Right. This was in the 1990s. Yes. And you mentioned your experience of being mentored. So what was your first experience of something that you would describe as being mentored? Absolutely. So I applied for that position. I went in for the interview with no prior experience, but having read the description, I could tell they wanted someone who was a novice and who could be trained. And I felt confident that I could be trained. (laughs) And I met Lily Miller, the executive director of the Goldfarb Institute. There was no other institute of its kind like it at the time. It was a private institute for educating healthcare professionals who specifically worked in the long-term care and post-acute care community. And the institute was housed within a skilled nursing facility. And it sat on a campus. And the campus was a combination of 55 and older living and housing, mm-hmm. uh, independent living, assisted living, and then the skilled nursing. And the Goldfarb Institute was in the medical wing of the skilled nursing facility. And the first day I arrived was Dr. Day, they used to call it. So it was the day that 
residents were getting seen by the physician, getting a checkup, you know, just, just getting seen. And that happened on a weekly basis. And I showed up and I was sort of like, oh, you know, here's like 75, uh, you know, elderly people in, in line, just waiting to see the doctor. And I, I kind of slid by them and, and went to the door, knocked on the door. Lily opened the door and she, she had me come in and she said, you know, don't close the door behind you. We're going to go back out into the hallway. And I said, oh, okay. You know, and she introduced herself, welcomed me, et cetera. And she said, let's go out here and talk. And we went out to the hallway and she greeted every single person by name. Oh my gosh. Every single one of them. Yeah. Knew personal details. Yeah. And they asked her how things were going. And the ones who couldn't talk, um, who were, you know, phasic or just were not having a good day. Some were screaming and yelling and combative, and they were there with their CGA or certified geriatric assistant. And I was looking around, and I'm not at all bothered by that because I immediately felt something in me start because I had volunteered for years in junior high school and high school at a nursing home in my community and then at the VA. So I thought, okay, I understand what's going on here. And I just kind of observed. And someone said, who's that to her? You know, <laughs> and she said, oh, I think she's going to take the position I have open. She's going to come work for the Institute. And they were like, who are you? You know, and I said my name and, you know, where are you from? And they were asking me questions and I was just answering and talking to them. And then more of them started to come around and ask me questions. And I realized Lily was just observing me right. in this environment. We were out there for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then she invited me back into the office and she said, you have the position. And I said, I do. Is there any kind of test I need to take? Did you want, I brought writing samples. <laughs> It was, I was a very formal person and still am to be perfectly honest, but I was just flabbergasted. Like I got the job already. And she said, you observed, you watched me interact and engage. You were not at all uncomfortable. They peppered you with questions and you responded. And that is what I'm looking for. First and foremost, you have to care about the people who will benefit from the education that these healthcare professionals will get. If you don't care about them, then you don't need to do this job because that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, wow. And she didn't know she was mentoring me necessarily, or maybe she did and I didn't know. <laughs> that was probably more like it. But from that moment on, everything from grant writing, which she was prolific at, to technology, which she was also incredibly good at. And you're talking about a woman in her late 60s mm -hmm. in 1997, excellent at technology, had me create an intranet for the Institute, had me working with the Institute to make sure all of our materials reflected culturally competent care, which was highly important because the campus was predominantly for people of uh, Orthodox Jewish background. Okay. It was about, at that time, 75% private pay, and almost all of the residents had an Orthodox Jewish background. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn the customs. I had to participate, <laughs> I, which I, all of this was unfamiliar to me, but yet not unfamiliar at all. And so she showed up 
from day one as a mentor without being heavy handed, but she made it clear what the foundation for the role was that I had to care about people. And in particular, elderly and infirm people and those who may not be able to advocate on their own behalf. So I'm feeling that story. (laughs) It's very powerful. And one of the things that I find really striking is you have a really strong service ethic that comes across in everything that you do. How do we get people to care? Because if those opportunities for being side by side and sharing the same space with people who are different from us, whoever we are, whoever the other is, then how can we create those care connections? That's a huge question. And, and I'm not sure it's one that we, we thought we were going to talk about. So maybe we circle back around to that. But I have a feeling you're going to want to address it. You know, it is a big question, Alex, and I definitely can't say I have any specific answers. A lot of it started with my upbringing. My mom was very civically engaged, and I also grew up during a time where community meant community. You knew your neighbors. You talked to your neighbors. I walked to the park by myself without fear. I had a a different type of upbringing because of the age that I am and the time frame I grew up in, but also because I was introduced and exposed to culture, different ways of, of believing. My mom was Catholic. She did not insist that we all go to Catholic church. I remember for a two year period, she allowed me to try all different religions and, you know, she'd ask if I was welcome to come, I could go and experience it and come back. But I had to tell her what was the experience? What did I learn from it? And when I finally settled on the fact that I did identify as Catholic, she was clearly very happy, but also she said, now make it your own. There is no one doctrine that's going to be right within Catholicism for you. And she also said, there's no one thing you're going to know about looking at someone. You have to hear their story. Let them tell you who they are. Don't make any assumptions. Mm -hmm. And I think I've walked into most situations with that in mind. And I think if we can do that, if we can remove our ego, which you and I were talking about before we started recording, if we can remove our ego from the equation and let people come to you as they are, um, I think that's critical to building both empathy and acceptance of others without it being tolerance. I really, I'm not a huge fan of the word tolerance because it, it automatically implies negative, <laughs> negative yeah. way of seeing things. No, I, I agree with you there. As soon as you say the word, there's, there's a discomfort that arises, you know, in my heart space. <laughs> I know what you mean. So your mom was modeling education to you, Absolutely. experiential learning as you were moving into young adulthood. So when you were talking about Lily Miller, you talked about you're not even sure if she was aware that she was mentoring you or maybe she was aware and you weren't aware. I think that kind of raises the question of what is it we mean by mentoring? Because it's possible to have those relationships in our lives, often at points that we need them, but we're not, we're not quite sure who the person is or why they're there. Um, so how do you define mentoring? You know, I obviously gave this a lot of thought before our discussion here today. 
And I even went to look up the word and see the different ways in which it was defined sort of across the internet. But I have to tell you, I came back to sort of a combination of what's out there, but also my own definition. My definition of mentoring is the process of establishing trust such that as the mentor, your lived experience adds value to the the experience of the mentee. It's a process. There is no, I mentored you and then I walked away. (laughs) I mentored you about this one topic and then we never talked about it again. If you're not building trust initially and listening more than anything, you know, sometimes I think people get confused that if you're the mentor, then you're telling the other person what they need to do. Mm -hmm. I, I feel it's very much the opposite. If you're the mentor, you're guiding the other person to think about what it is they want to do and how can they achieve it. And you can give them examples from your lived experience Mm -hmm. that can inform some of their choices, but you cannot tell them what to do. That's a different relationship entirely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in that experience of uh, being at the Goldfarb Institute, how did Lily Miller guide you? I didn't know it at the time that she was preparing to retire. And that was a very interesting time. So she didn't tell me she was preparing to retire, but she very quickly, once I got my footing and I began doing the work of, you know, helping to write the grants, helping to plan the curriculum, we were a curricular-based program. Mm -hmm. So two semesters a year, programs Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And that went on for three-month semesters, twice a year. And then a huge conference that we used to do on joint accreditation she started giving me responsibility for planning the huge joint accreditation conference. And I was always sort of skeptical, like, you sure, <laughs> sure you want me to do this? And I hadn't been there maybe six or seven months before the planning needed to start. And she oh was boy. Like, <laughs> run with it, go right ahead. Here are all the elements that you need. She didn't leave me you know, in the lurch, but she was like, here are all the elements that are required. And here's all the materials from last year. So you can take a look at those and you can use those to guide you. Now, we were nonprofit. So we, uh, interestingly, I I had no knowledge of funding from educational grants from pharma (laughs) before before moving to for-profit. I didn't even know that was an opportunity. But um, I was seeking funding from different sources, writing small grants, writing some larger government grants, and uh, working with the general public. And because the community I lived in, I lived in Highland Park, New Jersey at the time, Mm -hmm. which is known to be a predominantly Jewish community, significant number of Orthodox individuals live there. So I was living in the community, working on behalf of folks who believed. And so I was very embedded within the community and their needs. And so I think that drove a lot of my success. Not that I didn't have failures. And when I didn't do something that she expected me to do. There wasn't a, oh, I'm so disappointed in you. It was, you know, you got ahead of yourself. You know, there were some steps you needed to take in between here and here and you didn't take them. And maybe it's because you felt overconfident. Well, I, I know what I'm doing. I was successful here. And she was very good at stepping me back to say, you know, here's where the lapse happened. Mm-hmm. And here's where you need to shore up things. And let's go back and try it again. You don't get that in most professional settings. Right. It just doesn't happen. And 
It also doesn't necessarily happen when there's a young Black woman working in an Orthodox Jewish environment with an Orthodox Jewish mentor, you know, supervisor, leader, who's making it a priority to see you succeed. And so I learned by doing, and I embraced what I was doing, and I, I gained so much from it. And little by little, I began to understand the concept of mentoring. But I have to tell you, it wasn't fully manifested until after Lily announced to me that she was retiring. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I didn't see you interview anybody who's taking over, you know, who's coming in, or when will I meet this new executive director? And she was like, you will be the interim director of the Goldfarb Institute while the hiring process continues. We haven't found the right person. And I thought, oh no, (laughs) (laughs) we're coming up on a semester. I mean, there was so much that went into it. Everything was self-contained within the Institute. You couldn't bring food in or out. So I was working with our own internal food service because again, with the Orthodox Institute, you can't bring food in or out. So I, I had the curriculum planned and all the faculty communications to do. And we really were just a party of two. It was just the two of us plus volunteers to help me get out all the mailings. The registrations were really high. We were filling a need that wasn't being filled in other ways. And so mm. I was a little bit panicked. And she said, no, no, you've been doing it. Now you can own it, right? You're going to own it. And I'm going to leave you in good hands. You know, the director of the campus um, and the leadership are all behind you. They understand why I put you in place. I understood that I would never become executive director because they're expecting someone who's embedded in the community through faith and through connections within the community would, would lead. And I understood that. But that I was being given an opportunity to take ownership and that I could also put my stamp on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a way that maybe wasn't there because the difference between what I saw and what I was doing was also the the competencies needed for a lot of the CGAs who were mostly people of color, mm-hmm. right? So right. are we addressing their needs enough? Right. I, you know, there are a lot of physicians and pharmacists and nurses showing up here, many of whom are people of color, but the majority of people providing the care for actual residents are Mm -hmm. people of color right? and from all racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so I had a little kernel of an idea that I wanted to push through to do more CGA specific training and education. And was there a need? And so I did a little poll inside my community. And that was the first project that I ever pushed through to change the curriculum a bit. And that gave me confidence and you know, they eventually let me hire an administrative assistant. And I was able to bring in a young man, person of color. And he was almost in the same position I was in when I joined. And I wasn't there that long and had taken over. And he was like, oh, this is so interesting. And I could see myself passing on what I'd learned from Lily. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything, right? I was now in a position to both teach and educate, but to listen and hear him when he had real ideas that he thought could help change things. And he had a really strong nonprofit Mm -hmm. background. And so he knew things I didn't know. And I was like, yes, let's try that. So Mm -hmm. it's a continuous loop, Alex. It was a continuous loop 
you know, right in front of me happening in real time. And sometimes in the moment, you don't have a name for it, right? We like to call things things in education, but I didn't have a name for it at the time. But it was both me mentoring and again, in some ways being mentored by this new young person with these bright ideas (laughs) and eventually a new executive director who came in who was also really wonderful. So I'm sorry, that was a very long-winded way to <laughs> to answer your question, but it it's was a really wonderful, that experience. Yeah. No, it's it's a wonderful answer to the question. The word that comes to mind when you're talking about that process is reciprocity, because it's an exchange of expertise, of learning between, you know, two or more, more people. And, and that's what keeps the loop going. And you were still really young. <laughs> yeah. Not so much anymore, Alex, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all we're all there. And I and I stopped thinking about chronological age. <laughs> I hear for, you. For all sorts of reasons. Uh, mostly because uh, you know, I've stopped coloring my hair. And that's been a really interesting journey, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So in that process of giving and receiving of information and expertise. Actually, let me backtrack, because one of the things that you talked about was the curriculum that you designed for uh, CGAs. And, you know, I've been involved in a lot of projects interviewing providers for various kinds of research studies. And maybe about 10 years ago, I was traveling to different practices and being on site with people. And of course, one of the things that you realize very quickly is, you know, as you said, the people actually delivering care at the front line are often often medical assistants, you know, in different kinds of clinics and are mostly people of colour. But when you think about continuing education, none of the education that certainly I've been involved in, and I'd be interested to hear more about your experience really even thinks about, never mind targets education to those groups of caregivers. So given that you designed a curriculum early in your career, is that something that you've been able to thread through your professional experience as you've kind of moved into different positions and different work settings? You know, create that argument for, here's a really important group of healthcare workers who need to be better served? Alex, I wish I could tell you the answer was yes, but the answer is no. I have not been as successful as I would have liked. I'd say I've been mostly unsuccessful whenever I've lobbied um, my supervisors or my organizations that I've worked for to focus more intuitively on, you know, specific groups, whether it be people of color, whether it be women, in certain professions. I think I probably only had limited success early on, partially due to sort of reticence to even have the discussion amongst certain organizations, but also due to me not being well-versed enough to have the conversation the right way with the right people. Um, so it was a combination of things early on. It was my inexperience, having come from such an idyllic sort of situation into a for-profit setting where they were like, that's cute. 
you know, we're not going to do that. Right. <laughs> and I don't mean to be flip about it, but it was very much like, why would we focus on that? You know, that's just creating a, a situation where there is none. And I'm like, no, that's very much a real thing. It's happening, but okay. And it wasn't until I learned to have the conversation with more finesse and to come with, you know, important points of evidence that might matter to the people in the room so mm-hmm. I could read the room better uh, right. that I started to see success. Um, but even now, that success is oftentimes limited to uh, healthcare professionals at the physician, pharmacist sometimes in PPA level. When I start to have a conversation about what's happening at other levels, you know, what's happening with other types of healthcare professionals, allied health professionals, people who work in office settings, you know, Mm -hmm. professional practices, they're the first points of contact. When I want to have those conversations, oftentimes there's little or limited interest and not because they don't recognize it. So the problem is no longer lack of recognition. It's usually some other rationale or reason. Well, the shift from nonprofit to for-profit changes everything. And there's a politics around the conversations that can be had and how the conversations can be had. I get that. I want to come back to mentoring. Um, And you've touched on this a couple of Times And in your personal experience, you've already talked a little bit about how when you were at the Goldfarb Institute, you were able to transition from mentee to mentor. How can people working in continuing medical education, continuing professional development, continuing education for health professionals look for opportunities to mentor? And what should they be thinking about as they're looking for those opportunities? I always say, look around you, what's immediately around you. Are you in a position to support someone who's at a different stage of their career? Do you belong to professional organizations where they may be in need for mentorship? And maybe it's not always announced, but if you are interested in sharing your lived experience, your knowledge, your expertise, and listening and guiding Usually there's someone out there who wants it and needs it and is maybe a little bit afraid to ask for it because we've positioned mentorship as a very formal thing in a lot of settings. And those of us who may be in positions to mentor often view it as I don't have the time to take that on. And I mentioned earlier that I've been officially and unofficially mentored in many ways. And sometimes the unofficial is more impactful. Uh, It's those sidebar conversations where you reach out and say, you know, hey, how are things going? You know, you were working on a project. How did that turn out? You know, where are you at with the project? Um, Do you need someone to take a look at things for you who's sort of distant from the project and maybe provide some feedback? Those sound like, oh, I'm just offering to help. But what I want to make sure the person knows is that I recognize that they're doing something that's important to them. Maybe I have something to offer. It doesn't have to be grand. What you have to offer doesn't have to be some huge thing, but time is the thing that is hardest to come by. And it's the thing most people don't want to ask of you. So to me, that's a critical part of of mentoring to be able to reach out and say, I have time for you. And I have a, a woman who's we both know, I won't say her name, who is uh, very important to me. 
we began a mentor-mentee relationship uh, probably in 2013 or 14. And we find time to meet monthly to this day. That's wonderful. Uh, and she's on my level or surpassed it if you want to look at it that way. But we, we just keep finding time for each other. And so we've long since passed the point of mentor, mentee in quotation marks. We are supporting and serving each other as best we can. And we did it through the pandemic. We've done it through ups and downs in our career, you know, difficult projects, difficult periods of of life, personal and professional. And I hope it continues because mentorship fills you up. You may think of it as work, but ultimately it sounds cheesy, but you're you'll get so much more back than you ever put out that the work part of it will start to go away. You'll stop viewing it through that lens. Mm-hmm. So in order to be a mentor, you need to care in the first place. And you yeah. need to be able to express that care in a way that is meaningful to whomever is in front of you and and needs that kind of support. Just sticking with the in order to see yourself as a mentor, because I think one of the things that you talked about was, you know, it is about time. It is about guidance and and sharing expertise. You know, you mentioned that your mentor-mentee experience at the moment is you're at a similar level. So I'm guessing there are a lot of people who feel, okay, I'm not at a level where I can really share my expertise. I am, insert label, (laughs) uh, job title here. How do people get beyond that sense of you don't need to be at a certain level? You don't need to have a certain job title in order to be an effective mentor. Humility. (laughs) First and foremost, if all you are is the sum total of what you think you know, that is a very limiting box to put yourself in. I'm always hopeful every day that I'm going to learn something. And whether it's under my own volition or someone is going to tell me something I didn't know before, or I'm going to watch something and learn something from that, or by virtue of the work that I do, I'm going to have to look something up and I'm going to gain knowledge from that experience. I think the the thought process of thinking, I don't know enough, it's limiting. You don't have to know it all because that's actually not your job as a mentor. You have a different experience to offer. And to suggest that there's nothing to be learned from your different experience is very much off base. (laughs) You're selling yourself short if you're assuming that there's not something that someone else can learn from your experience. I love that. So for people listening who are thinking about mentoring, for whom that has crossed their minds, get over it and get out there. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right, Alex. (laughs) If you want to be mentored, and I think there are lots of us for whom that really uh, surfaces as as a need, as a desire at several different points across the life course, whether we're talking about careers or occupations or, you know, life itself. Of course, this is why the life coach industry has expanded, because we all need those kinds of touch points in our lives. We all need access to people who explicitly stand up and say, I care. And let's create something out of that. For people who who in this field are looking for a mentor, 
it almost seems to me as though that's that's the hardest place to be in. How might they go about it? So a lot of us are affiliated with the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions. They have a formal mentoring program where you can volunteer to be a mentor. And if you're interested, I believe Pam Mason leads it up, but you can just reach out to the Alliance and search on the website and actually the mentor program will come up. I also think too that folks are working in different areas of this industry. So I'm in pharma. I belong to the Healthcare Business Women's Association. I need to understand the broader aspect of the environment in which I work. And so I need a different type of mentorship around that than I do around CPD. So definitely you know, go to other places for that information. Look for professional organizations. If you have hobbies or you're interested in volunteering and you work with certain types of organizations, who's doing good work at those organizations that you admire? There are lessons from different aspects of your life that will apply to whatever you do. And so don't limit yourself to, I need a mentor who's in my profession. You know, there are lessons to be learned from people with lived experiences that are different from your own. So seek those out. Don't limit yourself to, well, this person doesn't work in healthcare education. Make sure you're, you're looking around you. Who's in your environment? Who have you heard or listened to that added value to what you do, where you walked away thinking, maybe I could do something differently? Sometimes I get that from podcasts. I listen to your podcast <laughs> a lot, which has been, there are other podcasts in the field. I don't want to discredit anybody, but it's been a voice that's missing, if I may just be so blunt. And the types of guests you've had on have been so varied, but I've not had one episode where I thought, oh, I didn't really get anything from that. I've gotten something from each and every one. And I think I hear people and I think, oh, I wonder if I could reach out to them. And I have to tell you, I reached out to someone who was a guest on your podcast. Because oh, I was that. like, oh, this is so interesting. Maybe I don't know enough about this. Um, curiosity will push you in a lot of directions too. Yes. So if you're curious yeah. about a subject and you know you don't know enough about it, reach out to people who you think might. Do some of the research. Sometimes there's work involved with being mentored, right? If you want yeah. a mentor, sometimes you have to do the work to seek out the right person, especially because everyone isn't a good fit. Yeah. You know, maybe that's a a topic we can discuss as part of this, but I've made some deliberate efforts to reach out to certain people in my mm -hmm. field that did not pan out. They either weren't interested in being a mentor, which is important because if you're not interested, I'd rather you say, I don't have time. Right. I can't commit to that. Uh, or they weren't a good fit because maybe they thought they had to provide all the answers. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what I was looking for. Right. You know, I think it. you do sometimes have to do the work. If you're looking for mm -hmm. a formal mentorship, a lot of professional programs will offer it. I'm lucky I work for an employer who offers it. Right. You're like, do you want to be mentored by someone here? Is there someone you respect and admire, whether they're in your function or department or not? Mm -hmm. um, you know, here's a list of people who specifically said, I'd be happy to mentor other colleagues of mine. Oh, that's great. And that has been huge for me because it's helped me connect with people who work in completely different areas of business. Mm -hmm. And it showed me how interconnected we all were, despite the fact right. that we have very different roles. Right. 
that's really important, no matter what your work is, to have that sense of not only where you fit in the whole kind of, you know, operation, but that interconnected piece that there's a there's someone at the end of all of this who needs what you do. I did want to follow up, as you said, about how to see the signs if a, a mentor-mentee relationship isn't working. So if we're talking about formal mentoring programs, you know, usually there is a matching process. And and often there's even, you know, some kind of contract. You know, this is what we're both signing up to. But if we're in an informal relationship, what are some of the red flags to look out for that if you're either a mentee or a mentor might be saying this is not a good fit it's it's time to wind this down absolutely so I tend to think when either of you has lost interest in the relationship you're not showing up for sort of regularly scheduled opportunities to connect you're not communicating effectively with one another anymore meaning that you're not either timely in your communications or you're not forthcoming about a particular need or ask from the other person, then you need to examine whether or not the relationship is serving either of you effectively. And it's okay to say that you may have outgrown the relationship. Maybe it's been a long-term process. And Mm. as a mentor, you want to give to someone else who maybe is at a different stage. Maybe you feel like you've given most of what you have to the person you're currently mentoring, or if you're a mentee, you can absolutely say, you know what, I've gotten a lot of what I can get from this relationship and it's been beneficial, but I may need mentoring in a different area. And it might help that someone else with that particular area of expertise or lived experience could help me more. If you feel a relationship is toxic, and that's any relationship, Definitely excuse yourself from the situation (laughs) Uh, politely. uh, Don't burn bridges, but it's okay to say, you know, I think uh, this has, you know, served me up to a point and now I'm prepared to move forward. And I I thank you and, you know, move on. It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Are there things that you think that are off limits for mentoring relationships in terms of things that we're going to focus on as part of this relationship. I guess I'm thinking mainly in, you mentioned there's a a mentoring program within your workplace setting. So if there's a formal program in a workplace setting, there's certain things that, you know, are controversial. You know, what's interesting is if if it's a formal mentoring program in a workplace setting, hopefully HR has put all the necessary parameters around it. I think you have to be careful of getting too personal with colleagues I think you may have great personal relationships with colleagues outside of work, but for a a mentorship program, it can be really difficult when the personal crosses into professional and vice versa. It happens every day because you bring your full self to work, hopefully. And yes, sometimes what's happening at home is going to impact the way you show up in a professional setting, but you, you really have to limit that to some degree, because you don't want to place undue burden on either party. You don't want that to interfere with the ability to achieve your original goal, which is to help guide and support if you're the mentor and listen. You know, if you can listen, absolutely listen. But if something makes you uncomfortable, state it clearly and set your boundaries early, right? 
And if you're the mentee, don't feel that you don't have the right to set boundaries. Mm -hmm. Set them, make it clear what you're there for and what you hope to achieve. And, you know, if you see red flags, are you concerned? If you're not comfortable speaking up, you may just have to extract yourself from the situation. Griselda, I feel like there are lots of different things that we could talk about here. And I think that setting boundaries has to be the topic of another conversation. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that is really important to you when thinking about mentoring? I think the thing that we haven't touched on, you know, obviously we're talking about a professional setting and we did just mention about personal things. Young people nowadays, it seems more than ever, could really benefit (laughs) from mentorship. And it's not because they're not smart and not savvy. It's because they're almost forced to be entirely too savvy and too aware too soon. And I think young people in those positions often grow into adults that lack the kind of self-awareness and insight that can become problematic. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's always an opportunity to support young people, even if they're just the young people in your life. I have uh, lots of little people, some medium people, and some older uh, people. They're all my little people, nieces, nephews, uh, godchildren. And one of the ways that I try to mentor them is by never lecturing them. But I schedule little Zoom calls. They're like 15 minutes usually. Mm -hmm. And I get them off their phone. They're still on a screen, but we're looking Mm -hmm. at each other. And I just go, what's going on? What's going on with you? And I ask them, what are you thinking about this week? What's happening in your life that's good? What's anything bad happening? We don't do that as adults. (laughs) very well. And when you don't see it modeled, you don't know to do it. So that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just the reality. And so I think the more we can start early and you never have to use the word mentor when it comes to kids. They're not interested (laughs) in the terminology. They don't know that's what you're attempting to do or that they just see it as someone who shows up for them and listens in a way that is non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. And maybe offers a nugget or a kernel of information, not advice. It's not up to you to take it or <laughs> to follow the path. Just so you know, this is the experience I had and this is how I handled it. So I think if anything, mentorship can come from young people, old people, everyone in between. You can do it officially, unofficially, formally, informally. Let's stop complicating it, right? And let's just make it normalized since that's the word people are using a lot lately. Let's normalize mentorship in all of its forms. Normalizing mentorship. Griselda Butler, ever the educator, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Alex. This is so much fun. I love being in conversation with you. I miss being on the research committee with you, but you're always teaching and educating through everything you do. So I'm grateful for this podcast. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. If you know Griselda, you know how visceral her passion is for educating and leading others toward their passion. And if you don't know Griselda, I think you can hear this passion in her voice. Griselda is someone who listens, observes, and who cares about the education that healthcare professionals are exposed to, 
including the health professionals that the field of continuing healthcare education often forgets, such as medical assistants or certified geriatric assistants. And she cares ultimately about the people who benefit from what health professionals learn. Patients, their caregivers and loved ones. That's you and me. Griselda's strong service ethic is palpable, and this is part of the energy I felt in our very first meeting all those years ago. And it's born from a life of civic engagement that was nurtured by strong women mentors, and that Griselda now channels into mentoring others through her own lived experience. And as she shared, if you are called to mentor, start from where you are. Are you in a position to support someone who's at a different stage of their career? Do you belong to a professional organization that needs mentorship, but it's not part of a formal program? If you're interested in sharing your lived experience, knowledge or expertise and are willing to listen and guide, usually there's someone out there who wants to listen and who needs to listen and is maybe a little bit afraid to ask for that support. And if you are that person, who needs support but is a little afraid to ask, the Alliance's pilot mentoring program launched in October 2020 and details are in the show notes. Thank you, listener, for connecting with Griselda and me in this episode. If you enjoyed the show, I invite you to subscribe or leave a review on your podcast listening platform. That helps us deepen our connection even further. I'm your host, Alex Heisen, and this is Right Medicine. Season two of Right Medicine is brought to you by CME Palooza, the bestest and freest online event for the CME community. Plus, you get two incredibly suave gentlemen. Okay, one incredibly suave gentleman. I'll leave it to you to figure out who that is. The fall agenda for CME Palooza is out now. CME Palooza where the CME community hangs out.